in order for you to fulfill the very intentions you most care about, you need to be effective. You need to be effective in your endeavors, in your decisions and actions. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And in order for any system, like let's com- consider human being a system here. Yeah? I'm not downgrading or reducing human being to robots, but we are a system. We are also a system. So in order for any system to be effective, to have that workability element, it needs to have its constituent parts to work in an optimum level. Welcome to the Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. Do you think about how you interact with the world around you? Today's guest, Ashkan Tashfir, has thought about this question deeply. In this episode, Ashken will take your mind to a level of deep thinking that you likely haven't been to. He's a thought leader in decoding the fundamental qualities that drive our decisions, behaviors, and results. Ashken is the founder and CEO of Ingenesis. He's not only a philosopher and a two-time best-selling author, but also has a strong background as a technologist, venture builder, and investor. He developed the Being Framework, which emphasizes the importance of self-reflection, and understanding how individuals can make meaningful contributions to foster growth and success within a team or organization. This is the Culture of Leadership podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Ashcan. What we want to really unpack today is this part of the book near the start. But some words that you use is the difference between looking and seeing. And if we think, think about that, again, our listenership, that audience base of leaders, business owners, leading people in their day-to-day. What does looking versus actually seeing mean? So let me go, uh, go a step back. So what we know is we all have consciousness, a degree of consciousness. You know? Now, well, consciousness is not only uh, there for human beings, it's also the other beings out there. For example, plants, they do have a degree of consciousness. Yeah, that's how they grow and they know what, how to observe things, et cetera, et cetera. Animals the same. They have a degree of consciousness. But when it comes to human being, we know that we have intentional consciousness. So we can be conscious of our consciousness. So that's a very unique phenomenon. You can, you can draw your attention to something. Therefore, you can become aware of something. So when it comes to seeing, I mean, when it comes to looking at something, when it comes, let me put it this way. For example, you can hear because you have sensory surfaces, you have sensory abilities. You can hear the sounds, you know, as far as you're not impaired, like in that regard. But that's an unconscious thing. This is something that you're not bringing your intentionality into it. So you just hear the sounds. But then there are times that you go, no, I want to intentionally listen to something. That's not hearing anymore. It is intentional. So it makes it listening. Well, that's why we have two different words for it. The same thing goes with the seeing, you know, like when, when you just look at something, you're just like, tapping into your sensory abilities as far as you're not blind physiologically, then you can look at something, you can see. But then when we say seeing or observing, you know, it's like um, when you bring that 
in intentionality, you want to become aware of whatever is going on. You make yourself present to that. And that's the difference. If I have a team of people that I'm entrusted to care for, what would looking at a person today who may be in distress about something versus seeing, actually seeing them? It is actually quite common. Let's say, for example, you're a HR manager. You are a leader in an organization. You're hiring people. You know that you have certain needs. You have, uh, you have certain gap that you want to feel. Now, it is quite common that we can be easily biased by, by just looking at someone's functionality, basically reducing the totality of someone, a human being, to their functionality. So therefore, if you're just like uh, a typical thinker in that case, you're going to go, okay, so what, who you are? And what you want to hear is like, I'm a software engineer with this amount of experience. I've worked in IBM and Oracle, and I'm, 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 I'm here to offer my service to you. And I'm going to get paid this much, and I'm going to da-da-da. Yeah, so that becomes... Now, but then if you are present to the fact that, yes, you know that you want the skill sets, you want their qualifications, you want their experience, but there's far more to do, I mean, with, with this person as a human being than, than just the, their functionality. Now, we, we've realized in working with many different leaders and teams that it's not just the skill sets of people, let's say, for example, the engineer, that makes it or break it when it comes to the successful de- delivery of projects. Is there so much more subtle qualities down deep there that contribute severely, massively mm-hmm. into the success of project you know, or the success uh, that person being successful in delivering what their functionality is you know for example is how that person relates to anxiety how that person relates to vulnerability is this person more concerned with actually getting the thing done appropriately or more concerned to be seen and taking credit for that is this person the person who wants to be seen as doing the right thing or is actually doing what he or she knows to be right yeah that's basically where i talk about uh, when i talk about vulnerability yeah mm. so there's so many different qualities like that that matters things like commitment let's say another quality that we keep talking about here you can have the, the most knowledgeable more experienced person in a field with lots of qualification but at the end of the day if they're committing to complete a task but then the way that they relate to commitment is like okay so i just give my commitment i say yes but i'm not going to fulfill that promise and it happens all the time then you are a team leader you are a leader in the organization you're you you are relying on the commitment of all these people around you which somehow we assume you know we assume that obviously even when you are being hired Therefore, you should be committed. Yeah? This you should be committed, and sometimes we see it as a common sense. But then these are not very common qualities. So what we encourage leaders is like to first equip themselves with, let's say, this ontological model, where to look at and how to read these qualities in their interactions with people. Because it's not just the skill sets that's going to bring value to the organization, but also how this person is relating to some of these more fundamental qualities. 
And then we can also talk about the unique being of that person, that uh, the, the, the major contribution that that unique person can make that is not replaceable and makes them not replaceable for others, especially when you're thinking about like leadership positions. You want that innate talent and unique being of a person to come in that is very different to another person. And now if the person is not polished, if you can't read those qualities in, in the people that you're adding to your team, then it's very likely they're not going to express the true, authentic manifestation of their very unique me. And that's a loss. Absolutely. It is a big loss. So if I put these in, in some other terms, so I guess I use when I'm working with people, there's the functional looking at somebody and they functionally can do X, Y, and Z. And then there's the human element, the human skill side, which is what I term as character, sort of their character with themselves, their relationship with themselves and their character with others, which has an impact on their connection with others and how they interact. And that, that to me falls in those human skills part of it. Is that fair to, again, very simple language, you're thinking on this compared to my thinking is you are a very deep thinker and you've spent a lot of time on this. I'm playing at this level, you're 10,000 underneath that. But is that fair to say how I've framed that? Yes, yes. The only thing that I would say is like, it's not just the skills. You know, skills are on the surface. It's more like so, so much more deep, I mean, deeper qualities that are not readily visible on the surface. Yeah. So those are. I think that's when I say human. Yes. I use that term skill, but the human element of the focus on the human, less on the skill. Yes. It's that human aspect. Yeah. Let me. me, Goes well with human being. Sure. So let me put it this way. You know, in a more conventional, if you want to use a more conventional language, it's like every human being has what I call web of perceptions. Basically, they have this web this network of uh, different perceptions of different things. Perception of leadership, the perception of marriage, the perception of God, the per- perception of care, the perception of responsibility, and so on. You know? And then the way that they relate to different meanings in life, and they have different perceptions of different things, it in great part is going to lead them to act upon them. So we behave, we make decisions and when we behave or take actions based of our awareness, our perception of different things. And then there's more to it, like, for example, which angle we're looking at that, like perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, it's going to be extremely important, you know, when you're working with a person, see how they are relating to themselves, how they're relating to, you know, responsibility, how they're relating to your company. These are the things that matter. So that's that's what we're more talking about. Yeah, that's the whole nuance of the the situation. Yes, is that where the reality comes in, or a person's perception of reality? Well, in part, yes, yeah. But then, when when you say reality, we need to be very tell us more about real, like defining reality for us, because sure. this is something I've learned through your boy. Every time I read something in a sentence, it's like, wow, I've never ever looked at it like that. So you know, when it comes to words in general, like just to create the context. When it comes to words, is is that the word that have ha, has the axiom or the primacy or the importance or the actual meaning that the word is referring to them? So these are completely two different schools of thinking. Mm-hmm. So is that like the word takes primacy or the meaning that the word? If you uh, pay attention in the books, I often don't say the the meaning of this word is this. I say that the meaning that this word is used to refer to it yeah 
or this word refers to. Now, when it comes to uh, reality, we use the term, the, the, the word reality, and we refer to different meanings, yeah, different things completely. So to, make, to bring it home, uh, it's like, uh, for example, like in, in English, we say spirit. Yeah, spirit, the word spirit. But then spirit can mean like a, a kind of alcohol. Also, it means like soul or, you know, like your attitudinal characteristics. So these are completely different things that for whatever reason we use the same word to refer to. Now, when it comes to reality, is the same thing. But because somehow the meanings, the, these different meanings that we, we, we refer to with, by the word um, reality are somehow similar, then we collapse it. You know? So that's why I talk about three different layers of reality. You know, or three different meanings that we use the word reality to refer to. One is this, some people don't like this term when we say objective reality, you know? but so th- there is the absolutes of this word, the laws of the universe. Let's say, for example, things like gravity, you know? and we don't want to make it too intellectual, we don't want to intellectualize it too much because there are so many different uh, contracting and con- contradicting views around that. But simply, if, for example, there's a snake here in this room, it's better for us to acknowledge that and not perceive that as a piece of, as a rope, you know? because it has a completely different consequences. You know? we, we need to respond to it quite differently. But then um, it is um, one, one of the greatest vulnerabilities that we have as human beings is our perceptual system, or better to say, the limitations to our perceptual system. See, we can see things that aren't even there. We can be delusional. We have this possibility of imagination. We can be delusional around things. Mm. At the same time, we can sometimes not see what's so visible right in front of our face because it's too close to us. We can't see it. Yeah? Mm. So that makes us being very, very vulnerable. You know, Imagine that you don't know if your conceptions of different fragments of reality are actually congruent with how things are. So knowing that, I mean, let's go back to the conversation around the absolutes of this word. Yeah, so things like gravity, uh, it's there. It's there. Uh, things like it, this this thing is a, is a snake, not a piece of rope. So when it comes to the first layer reality, it's better for us to acknowledge that it's being dictated to us. And the acknowledgement of that actually is so freeing. For example, like, it can be argued that, oh no, you see, for example, when we invented aeroplanes, we actually are going against gravity. Well, that's a logical fallacy. That's not true. We actually acknowledge the laws of physics, including gravity, and taking them into consideration when we were inventing uh, things like aeroplanes, so it works. We know that if you go with this speed, in this velocity, etc., etc., then it works. Now, if you step over any part of that, the airplane is not going to work. It's going to cost us something, yeah? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the absolutes of the word, you know, we, we, we perhaps take a completely different approach. Now, I'm not arguing here that we have 
direct access to the absolutes of this world. There's no this repository of the truth that you can go, even scientifically, you can go and then fully access it. But then the aim and the willingness to go and want to be authentically aware of some of these fragments of reality is extremely important. Now, some, some of them are sitting in the physical realm, things like gravity. And then some of them, some of these laws are sitting in the metaphysical realm. Things like, for example, in order for any relationship to work, commitment matters. Now, by commitment, I'm not referring to being faithful or these things. Uh, Whatever agreement I and you are having, it needs to bind, it needs to be fulfilled, uh, it needs to be respected by both of us. If any of us breach the agreement that we have, then that's not going to build lasting relationships. Yeah. So we have we know that. Now some may argue that these are transcendent laws. Uh, some they don't like that term. I'll go, okay, so these are transhistorical terms. We gradually learn as we evolved that in order for our relationship to work, we should be respecting commitments. Otherwise, you know, it's going to break. So speaking very simply on that, just the commitment of you coming to the studio today, me coming to the studio, Mark being set up and us having this conversation, there's a level of commitment yes. in that. Yes. And you you need that like in like when you're when, when you're giving promise to your clients, you know, as a as a business, you're basically telling them that we're going to be reliable and we're going to be committed to deliver what is being discussed as the scope of this project. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That's why they voluntarily choose to vote you in, yeah? mm-hmm. to pay you, exchange that, exchange money with um, the value that they assume based off your based on the, the agreement that you have, you're going to deliver. Yeah? And then you're going to come and then work with your uh, teammates. You're going to work with your team. You're going to split the tasks you want to ensure that everyone is on the same page with regards to the scope of project. Otherwise, we're going to deal with the scope creeps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're going to deal with like we end up creating a solution which uh, the client didn't even want it. You know. Yeah. And then you're going to rely on the members of the team that they are going to fulfill their commitments. Mm-hmm. And if they're missing something, they're not going to have their guard up. They're going to own it. They're going to clean it up, and then we can move on and. You know that will lead to potentially to the success of the project. So, so therefore, yeah, there are the first layer reality, as I call them, and then there is the second layer reality, or some may call it like shared reality or social reality. These are the terms that can be used. So, these are the conventions. These are like the the conventions that we create together. So, our brain is trapped into what is called the skull your brain, the physical brain. And the, the, the physical brain doesn't have any clue what's going on out in the world. You know, it doesn't have a full, complete theory of everything. It doesn't have the complete mental model of everything. So what, what, what it does is basically it's going, to, it's going to receive signals of the changes that are happening out there you know, or inside your body. So therefore, the brain is going to rely on the the surface level, um, um, the surface, the sensory surfaces, sorry. So your brain is going to rely on sensory surfaces uh, surfaces that they're going to transmit all these signals to it. And there's limitations when it comes to our brain because the brain 
through these signals can can see, can understand, uh, can receive these signals, the effect of the things that are happening out there, but the brain cannot tell what the cause was, if it makes sense. Now, philosophically and scientifically, there is this term that we use, it's called the reverse inference. Yeah, it's called reverse. Yeah, it's called reverse inference. Basically, it's like uh, something happens out there. Yeah, for example, someone is coming at you. You know, with f- full speed. Now, how are you going to perceive that? Yeah, you don't know. Then what you're going to do? You probably going depends to, how big he or her is. Yes, <laughs> and and, and more, <laughs> the signals coming into my yeah, head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that's the thing. And also, and also, it it, it depends on what sort of previous experiences you had. Because, see, you know, psychologically speaking, we talk about this thing called uh, categories. You know, categories is like the similar patterns that, you know, like you see and you collect. You know? mm. Now, wh- whenever your brain is going to help you making a decision, so what it, what it does, it's, it's, it's going to create a category of instances of the past and find the similarities to some of the things that are going on in the present so that it helps you predict what you're what you're going to do next. So when it comes to the second layer reality, is we we have this ability to uh, of imagination. So basically, what imagination here is, I mean, in this context, is your your mind is going to help you going and bringing bits and pieces of your previous experiences put them together in a kind of new format which was not even there and you haven't experienced before and you're going to come up with a completely new thing which you haven't even experienced before. So that's that's what we call imagination, yeah? which is a curse and blessing at the same time. It's a double-edged sword. That's why I said that there's this limitations or characteristics of characteristic of our perceptual system. I said that you can see things that are not even there. So it relates back to the imagination ability. And you can also not see what's so apparent and visible there. So now you can imagine thing. You can imagine thing. And and that's basically goes back to our third layer reality or personal reality. So you can come up with things. You can be creative and come up with things that are not even there. Just before you go further into that, Using our snake, which is in the room, the snake I see, and that's my first level objection, objective reality. That's your personal reality first. That's personal reality yeah, first. You're, you're, you're receiving that. Okay, you're perceiving so I'm, that. I'm receiving the information to my brain that there's a snake there. Yes. If I've got a maybe an unhealthy relationship with fear and maybe even talking, linking back to categories that, hey, I've got training on handling snakes. This is the most venomous snake there because yes. of this training that I think I've had and I've got an unhealthy relationship with fear. Yes. Then I'm going to bravo over and I'm going to pick it up with my hands and do all this and then get stung or get bitten and die. Uh, all these things are processing, but there's unhealthy relationships with elements of my being that would cause that to happen. And part of that is my unhealthy reality. Your let's relationship say, with my reality. relationship with reality. Yeah. yeah. So so let's stick with this 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 example. Yeah. So let's say for example, snakes. I, I know a little bit about reptiles. I like mm. reptiles. So, I figured you brought them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so the thing is like you 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 encounter something 
uh, let's say a real snake, yeah. And then immediately, you know, if you had previous experiences with saying it's going to get in the way, I mean, it's going to contribute to how you're going to respond. But let's not even go to the responding. Um, you perceive that now. Most people don't know that majority of like the he, many of the snakes out there are not even venomous. So if they see a snake, they're going to freak out. Yeah, they're going to, you know, like the limbic system in the brain is going to warn them, go, oh, there's this threat. You know, they may run away, they may do something, they may scream or et cetera, et cetera. But then if if you do have this authentic awareness, so basically you're not trapped in your immediate perception of whatever is going on, which is personal, you actually go back and then check the authenticity or congruence of your understanding or your knowledge or conception of snakes. Then you go, wait a moment, this one is not is not even venomous. I'm not going to be worried about this snake. Just hi, let it go, and you're not going to be worried about it. While, for example, it's a brown snake here in Australia, it's going to be one of the most venomous snakes. If you do have that authentic knowledge, then your that that authenticity in your awareness of that very thing is going to come to rescue you. And that's why it's so important. So that's really that ability to use the word a couple of times, respond, but your ability to respond, and bearing in mind this stuff is happening in fractions of a second, but your ability to respond versus your ability to react. Yes. Which is a really important leadership skill or development to have in order to lead well. So let me complete that layers of reality and then we come back here if you like. So so therefore you have your personal reality. I'll call it third layer reality, personal reality. And you can come up with imaginary thing. You can come up with ideas that hasn't been there. Or you may be perceiving something uh, outside and then that's for now, it's your personal reality. Or one of the most important, I mean, most common example of that is like when we create a stories, like some event happens, like our partner behaves in a certain way, and they receive it in a particular way. Did they mean that? We don't know. Like, that's my story. That's my experience. And for me to project that and see that as the totality of whatever has happened, that's inauthentic on itself. And that's very limiting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I observe something; it lands in a way to me. That's not the totality of the truth of the matter. Yeah, that's my perception of what it was going. On. That's my story of whatever is going on. So, so again, I'm just going to stop you there because, again, putting this in the context of leadership and teams, that a leader is seeing a team member act a certain way, then that is their that is the leader's perception of that reality. Yes, yeah. So Im- Im- immediately. Now, first step. Uh, if, yes. Now, if that leader is a relatively more polished person, I mean, in terms of being, yeah, if they, they are equipped with what I call perspective quadrant, if they're equipped with like knowing that we have uh, you know, authenticity around their perceptions, like opinions and beliefs, like how lenient they are when it comes to shaping opinions, like so many of these things matter, like basically how they relate to awareness, uh, authenticity, et cetera, et cetera. Then uh, the validity of the perception can be higher or lower, we could say, yeah? Mm -hmm. But yeah, immediately, typically speaking, we can say that something happens in the team with regards to a project, you're going to immediately interpret it in a certain way, but that's not the totality of the truth yet. Mm You know, like, mm. uh, and that's where looking versus taking yes. the opportunity to see comes in. Yes, 
Yes. Now, so this is this is the personal reality. And then when it comes to the second layer reality is the time that then someone initiates something. So someone brings their personal reality into a kind of social discord, social environment or team environment. Some uh, bring it to a, a context beyond themselves. And then they start having that conversation. And they start having that conversation. And through negotiation, that reality evolves. That's like, for example, like here in, in our era, um, many talks about talk about uh, social construct. So this thing is social construct. That thing is social construct. And to some extent, that's true. Like, depends on what you're talking about. Yeah, that's why these layers of reality matters. Yeah, because it is quite common for us human beings that we remember I said that psychologically speaking, we talk about categories. So when when you're going to find in a semantic way, yeah, you're going to find the similarities between different things. For example, say, this is apple, this is apple, this is apple, but that's orange. So what is what is your what is the feature, the key features of similarities when you're creating that category? Because one of the apples could be like green, another one could be yellow, another one would be a shade of red, yeah? So often what we do, often what we do, when especially when it comes with uh, objects and, and human beings, we, we categorize people, we find these similarities in the functionality. So we, What do you mean? Yeah, for example, like we say that like book is to be read, yeah? Book is something to be read. So the functionality... Or listen to. Yeah, yeah or listen to it nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Your or, books are available on audio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or as I said, like for example, like when we reduce the totality of a human being to their functionality, it's like that's why we say human resources. It's like a resource. While it's not the human who is being a resource, it's the labor or work by a human being. It's human's work is a resource, uh, you know, is an economic resource, not the whole human being. Yeah? But we, we, it's quite often, you know, common that we, we call, we, we call it in the corporate words, a human resources. Yeah? So we, we tend to categorize things based of the feature of their functionality. And then we, we discussed that you, you have this ability of imagination, you know, and then you also have ability to bring your personal reality into a social discourse and negotiate that. And then if there is enough number of people that they believe in what it was created, even if it doesn't have any root in the first layer reality, it becomes a thing. It's a kind of agreement yeah, until it's being renegotiated. This is exactly why we can create constructs that are not necessarily factual, things like money or dollar notes as a piece of paper at the end of the day. But we all agree that it has a certain functionality. Now, this functionality has nothing to do whatsoever by its uh, nature, I mean, characteristic nature. Like this piece of paper doesn't have any intrinsic value on itself. So now even at the time that it was gold, then you could say that it has some level of intrinsic value because you could melt it down, then still gold would be gold. And gold is a natural resource that is so rare, scarce. Therefore, if the demand is higher than the supply, it keeps its own value and it that binds even today because we cannot miraculously, like an alchemist, change the nature of some other metal to gold. But to, in today's world, like we have these tokens. We have this piece of paper that we agree that it's valuable. Yeah, that's, we agree that it's valuable. And this one, while 
I mean, physically is the same thing. Is it worth ten dollars, and the other one is like one hundred dollars, but then it's the same thing. You know, if you look at it. So, so therefore, many of these constructs that we have created, you know, the roles in the government, like we draw a line in the sand and we say that okay, so here's our border, that's your border, or we create different groups within the society. We say, oh, these are like this minority group, that's like that minority group. These are immigrants, those are citizens, you know, like we create all these. Uh, so these are all They're all social constructs. Yeah, so these are the constructs that we create. And then as, as, as far as we acknowledge them or we endorse them or we, we give rise to them more and more, it, they're going to stay there. So therefore, we're coming up with something it could have been a personal reality of a person at some point, quite influential, uh, a kind of leader. And then the, it is being brought to the second layer reality. It's being negotiated and keep re- renegotiated uh, in our society, in our team, in our organization. And as far as like there's enough number of people believing in that thing, even if it doesn't have any root in the actual first layer reality, it's going to bind. Now, this reality, this shared level of reality is something to be renegotiated. Can I throw an example? Sure. I feel like the thing I cannot get out of my head because of the way society is nowadays is gender. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about gender in relation to first level, second level, third level and where we've got to. That, that's a very good example. While it can be really controversial at times because... It's really important how um, the audience to this conversation chooses to listen, that presence, yeah? There are... Which is leadership in itself. If you're willing to listen to an argument, a conversation, a discussion around something like this, then that's being curious. Yes, yes, yeah. See, you know, like when it comes to, let's say, sex, yeah, let's start there. I have some background in the health science as well. I'm studying it more and more. So in biology and physiology. So when it comes to sex, there are indicators empirically that you know that like there is this sex and then there is this sex. So that that is quite clear. Yeah. Now, still, like there are some conversations around that when it comes to chromosomes, then you're going to have a spectrum which makes it not as clear as we used to think, yeah? But it's still, you know, like people have genitals and, you know, the genitals have certain physiological function, you'd like, yeah? So that's phys- physiological function and they, they basically do something in our body. Let's not go through the hormones and everything. Now, but then when it comes to, okay, so in, in certain cultures, you know, for example, let's say, for example, we say, uh, women are the one who should wash the dishes. I mean, who said so? Yeah, this is something that, you know... It doesn't happen in my ma- house very often, mate. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> happen in ours too. You know, like, it, it basically, that, that that task is being outsourced to the dishwasher. <laughs> but, yeah, that's like the modern um, solution to that. But, but the thing is, maybe, you know, like historically, it was making sense of when we were in the cave, I don't know, like whatever, something that, you know, the, the, the male would be physiologically, you know, like more... Uh, powerful, like with their muscle mass and everything, would be more intimidating. Really going back to the, going back to the hun- hunting thing, yep. yeah. Yep. So hunting and then bringing food, which was extremely important. Like otherwise, it could have led to um, existential threat. Yeah. So for our survival, so we did that. Yeah. And then you know, so there were so- certain other things that needed to be taken care of, and then the females, perhaps. Now, 
So that that part is a uh, second layer reality. It's something that it can be renegotiated, and it is being renegotiated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some of these conversation that it's going on, especially in last couple of years, like around heteronormativity. Normativity. Yeah, is that the word? <laughs> Heteronormative. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a heteronormative uh, things like uh, you know the certain functionalities from a societal perspective that is more associated to women or men, or for example, like how we dress even. Yeah, mm-hmm. so some you know like I sometimes I have like my rings and everything. It's not very common for males to have this style of rings or like an accessories and so again, who said so? You know, like why should not like dress. Mm, like uh, use fabrics that are floral for men, you know, mm. or or any other. So these are some of these things are quite um, social constructs. Uh, there's no doubt in that. And these these things can be re- renegotiated. And if you look into the history, you can see like even floral clothes and everything. If you go back to, I mean, the history of Italy or like m- many of the kings, let's say, for example, in different cultures, they would have all these like very non so so if you're talking about that level of uh, things uh, yeah so there are certain things that it's like from a societal perspective in certain different cultures they're associated to be feminine or masculine or something if we're talking about these things they're very negotiable yeah Mm -hmm. but then if you're talking about the physiological aspect to our sex that's a completely different story it better to surrender to the very uh, firstly reality side of that, if it makes sense. So basically, all the, many of these conflicts are coming from uh, us collapsing these different layers of reality. That that they, they can easily not be there. They can easily not be there if you don't collapse this level of re- realities. It's it doesn't need to be leading to this polarizing thing. Yeah? Say for example, like if someone's say for, should I let my sexual preferences dictate my identity or you know take over my overall identity? You know, would you let your preferences in how uh, you want to eat this for that for or you know your diet define you? So that's a thing. If for example, this is just stuff for people to consider. If you know, like your sexual alternative sexual preferences was a thing for you, but then you don't let that to fully define you, you know, then there wouldn't be that kind of a controversy around identity issues and identity politics and everything. Let's say that we identify as human beings. Let's 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 identify as human beings. Um, why why is it that I need to get my religion or my preferences around sexuality or something needs to be defining me in its totality? You know, I'm not saying that people should not be having like identifying as this and that in part. What I'm saying is down deep there, it's not me being this race or that race or me being this religion or that religion. It's um, the whole conversation here is let's go deeper let's see what we are as human beings instead of focusing so much on our differences or pre different preferences if you like uh, let's go back to the root and then see that the, the the branches of the tree are of the same root we have so many things in common why is it that we go and then focus so much on the differences yeah so 
I don't know, like the, the, our bones is in the same way and the same color. Our liver is in the same color. Lots of things is in the same color in our body. And then we go and then we pick on like the, the pigmentations in our skin and that makes us different. You know, it's again, sorry, it goes back again. Like, what are your priorities? Where exactly you're choosing, what exactly you're choosing to put your attention, intentional consciousness on? I feel like you would be a person that would have some sort of sensible answer to this question is, how have we got ourselves to this compressed levels of reality in some of these areas? Like what's, have you put any deep thought into into that? In the new book, uh, in the award from the author, I talk about this thing that if I'm being asked from a philosopher perspective, what is the number one big problem for humanity at the moment? immediately I will go confusion. Confusion? Confusion. Tell us more. Yeah. So a good example of that high level is like us collapsing these different layers of reality. And then we go into these heated arguments, heated arguments. Some of these conversations which we just had, like it's turning to protests and turning to even physical violence. It's turning to so many political issues and, you know, societal matters and polarization of the society, et cetera, et cetera, while it doesn't necessarily need to. See, this is not a pacifistic notion, statement. It, I, don't, I don't think that I'm, I'm going about like not having conflict. And sometimes conflict is healthy, yeah? But so many of that, so many of these conflicts are redundant, unnecessary. It's just because we're not hearing each other out properly, effectively. We don't have that effective channels of communication with each other. Uh, so that with openness, with vulnerability, sitting there, listening to this other person, see what their experience of life is. And definitely their unique experience of life is going to be perhaps extremely different to your experience of life. And I, I acknowledging these differences, acknowledging as far as like the things that are unfolding are not leading to unnecessary suffering then let it be. But then that's not how we think. We want to change each other. Now you need to be this way. You need to become like me. Otherwise, if you're not like me exactly, if there is any slight differences between me and you, even different preferences between me and you, you are the bad person and you are existential threat for me or my ideas. Therefore, you are not one of us. And that's that's a doctrine of war and conflict. Yeah, yeah. The cycle is curiosity the medicine to confusion. I'd say on top of curiosity, curiosity is necessary, but it's not enough. I'll go sincerity. Sincerity. What so, do you mean when you say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So see, imagine that you go to this. Um, actually, I have it in one of the books. So you go to this room, and there's this box, and then you get curious. You want to know what's in it. You go, if you're going from the curiosity, if, if your approach is curiosity, pure curiosity, you're going to go open the box, see that there is a shirt button in it. And then you go, okay, good. I didn't know. I wanted to know. Now I know. Mission accomplished. But then imagine that you are this person who's lost their shirt button. The, but, the, the shirt is out of integrity now. It's not usable. You can't put that on without that um, shirt button. So what you're going to do, you're going to the same room, but this time you're going from sincerity perspective. 
you know that you have lost something. You you have a missing part. You go there. You open the box in hope of finding what you what you have missed. You find the same shirt button, but this time is different. It's not just you now know and mission accomplished. You actually found something you have lost, and you're going to bring that back. You're going to put that shirt button, attach the shirt button to your shirt. You're going to restore its integrity and the shirt is workable again. So similarly, you know, when it comes to, you know, because the context of your audience mainly, I mean, is like leadership. And so constantly the integrity of the business, the organization is being shattered. And most of the time, the source is not you. But you have to respond to it, perhaps appropriately. You need to be, bring that wisdom and appropriacy into your responses. So not only naturally as a leader, you're required to do that, but also legally, you are responsible to respond to the matters. No, you know, regardless of the source, you can't say, that, oh, this is not what I caused. This is like this person, no organization caused it. And then start pointing finger and blame. You are responsible at the end of the day. Uh, you are accountable at the end of the day. Yeah. So therefore, it's going to be really hard because as, a, as people, as human beings, we even sometimes struggle to own our own shadow parts, troubled sides, yeah, or some people say flaws. But then if you are a leader, then not only you need to own your own shadows, you need to own the shadow of every single individual in your team gracefully, unless you believe that you can go and then hire perfect people from the Mars. Yeah. So, yeah. They do exist on Mars, do they? Yeah, I don't Is know. that why Elon's going there? <laughs> yeah, perhaps, yeah, that's a hope. So therefore, you know, all these things are going to come like from, like, let's say, the current couple of years and the last previous couple of years here in Australia, like bushfires and flood. And then, you know, like we have uh, COVID-19, all these things, they're going to come. Yeah? So uh, these are some natural disasters, but there's more. So they're going to shatter the integrity of your business or organization to the point that it, you can be out of the game. So the leaders are the ones that actually find the, the tiniest threat so that they can hold on to, pull, and change the direction and change the course. So now, unless you're able to identify and uh, identify the parts that are missing with sincerity and with responsibility, the ability to be able to respond, then you're not going to, and, and then with that authentic awareness, like if you're not willing and capable at the same time to go there and identify what, what exactly is not working, uh, because you're seeing the effects, as we said, when we're talking about the brain, you don't know the cause exactly. That's the, the reverse inference. You need to now guess. You need to now guess what the causes were. So, Unless you, you're, you're willing and capable of doing that, you're not going to identify the parts that are compromising the integrity of your business. And if you don't have that uh, realization, if you don't have that understanding, you can't even come up with solutions for that, seek solutions to address them. So you cannot become effective in something you're so unaware of. It's one of the metaphysical laws. That's the challenge, isn't it? Because in all of these things that you've touched on just in the more recent part of the conversation, there's so many challenges 
that leaders face with their teams and the individuals in the teams are facing the same challenges in life and society and constructs and all those sorts of things. If a person is not having a good understanding of their own level of being and their own interaction with some of these 31 ways of being in the, the human being book, it's like they've got no chance. Like they, if, they, if they can't take that level of awareness for themselves, then how can they even see it, identify it, and respond to it in others? That, that's correct, yeah. So hence the importance of this thing called authentic awareness. And authentic awareness, it doesn't mean that, you know, as I said, it's, it doesn't mean that there is this repository of all truth and then you go there and then you pull your, you know, some of them out. It's an approach. It's an ontological or epistemological approach. Simply put, it's like how you, what you know to be true and, and what are the ways of examining reality for you? Like how you go about it to know. How are you going to be when you know something or you don't know something? For example, if you don't understand something, are you going to collapse or you're going to go and then educate yourself? Because at the end of the day, see this whole conversation when it comes to philosophy of achievement, as I talk, you know, like we're studying the, the highest achievers in the world. When it comes to the philosophy of achievement, in a very, very simple language, I can put it this way. If you are polished enough with regards to your authentic awareness and, you know, all the rest of the being um, aspects of being, you so know and leave life from this viewpoint that you can go and learn whatever is required so that you can hit any target that you're setting for yourself. Now, you can scale it up, like not just from an individualist, individualistic perspective, but like if you, if you relate to partnership in an effective way, if you're relating to compassion in an effective way, if you're relating to many of these different qualities that we have, you're capable of going there, identifying the need, identifying what sort of different skill sets and what kind of different people you need to go and partner with, put all that talents and economic resources and everything that is required, bring them all together, bring the leadership that is required and shift them from the areas of lower productivity and yield to the areas of higher productivity and return. And that basically means in a global, I mean, nation, in, in a whole nation is like growth, economical growth, economical development. So if you go to, because like many of your audience are entrepreneurs and business leaders, see the term entrepreneur was coined by the French economist, John Say Baptist. So he says entrepreneur is the one who shifts economic resources from the areas of lower productivity and yield to the areas of higher productivity and return. So basically these resources and the work of people, you know, I don't call people resources, are just sitting there and because that context is not being provided, that leadership is not being provided, on, it, on themselves they, they, they're not as valuable as they could be when there is a system in place, when there's a proper leadership in place, when there are processes and processes, when there's a kind of environment that it brings all these different talents, unique being of these people, experiences, skill sets, technologies, monetary capital, putting them together, but then the, the, the result or the outcome is not going to be just a mathematical, arithmetic aggregation of the all of those resources uh, but far beyond it's going to be synergically 
generating far more value, that's actually the thing that is going to lead that organization generating the surplus value that often is called profit. And then how, how that is going to be distributed, that's a completely different conversation. Oh, we're not going there. But yeah, so this is how you generate surplus value. This is how you generate wealth out of thin air. If you look into the, uh, the countries with a higher GDP, so because their production is higher. How the production is higher is the quality of their people. It's the leadership that is being provided. It's the, it's the whole platform that is being pr- prepared and the urges that is coming from that entrepreneurial mindset. Mm, really the power of systems, isn't yeah, it? Now, so in this context, so let's say, for example, since we talked about the human side and everything, so when, when it comes to we're working with different leaders in organizations, we go, okay, so let's, let's consider looking into compassion. Go, oh, 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 well, why are we talking about compassion? Um, I mean, like we're not talking about my relationship with my wife or family. We're talking about growth in my sales team. Uh-huh. So perhaps the blind spot is right there. See, when we're talking about compassion, we're not talking about like a kind of altruistic kind of quality or like a kindness. You know, I'm not saying those are not important, but I'm saying that the conversation we're having is far more technical, tangible, and concrete. It has practicality associated with it. Let me explain. As an entrepreneur, as the as leaders of businesses, at the end of the day, what you're going to do, you're going to go out there with sensitivity, sensitivity, with compassion. You're going to look into some deep psychological problems or needs that people have, because at the heart of any successful businesses business that I've studied, many of the 500 Fortune companies, the seats a deep psychological human being problem, at least one. You know, behind any successful product, there is something uh, human-related sitting there. They can see that and be compassionate about it. Compassionate in a sense that there is this need, there is a market. There's these people that are whining about something. There's these people that are so in need. There is this, this burning pain or problem that they're dealing with and seems that they're incapable of coming up with effective solutions. So that's a validation. With that compassion, you're going to be making yourself present with that intentional awareness. You're going to be present to the need of a certain group of people. Oh, that is called market. Market is just a bunch of people. It's a group of people in need. Then what you're going to do, you're going to first tap into your own human capital, your own qualities, your own ability to sell your vision before it's even turning to a product. Your ability to read the pain of people, your your ability to find, to work out what kind of skills and what kind of different qualities is required, you know, expertise that is required. You bring them, all these people together, you sell them a vision first and then work with some group of that market initially, build your product with their help. You're not going to take this arrogant pathway of, okay, so I'll go and then come up with this solution. We see that a lot. We see that many uh, entrepreneurs, they come up with a solution in search for requirement. They spend $8 million R&D building the product and everything. They're coming to us, go, oh, now we have one big problem. Go, what is it? We don't have a customer. Well, it's too late. So the thing is, then you work with them, you build it with them, you make it the thing that they find valuable. Now, guess what? If then, again, you tap into your qualities as a leader, 
If you can be present, if you can be effective with your communication, if if you can adjust your language and then create the messages that then it resonates with them, they see the value, they see way more value in what you have to offer than the price that you are asking for it, they're going to voluntarily vote you in. They're going to voluntarily exchange money with the the offering that you're providing to them. And that's the pathway of generating revenue, which is the concern for many organizations out there. The problem is sometimes I see them more far more focusing on accumulation of money or wealth or generating revenue or creating profitability than actually focusing so much on giving or preparation that is required for that giving. Because the only legitimate way through businesses that you're going to make money is going to be focusing on giving first and influencing the perceived value of your offering so that they voluntarily vote you in. They they vote for your um, survival and growth. And that's how businesses grow. There's so, so much important these human qualities and often being overlooked. Isn't there? Yes. And again, I take it back to the top around really looking versus seeing again from an entrepreneurial perspective if if they're not having that level of awareness that they need then they are just looking and they're not seeing what they should see in order to even create that opportunity well, yes, yes it's such a again your your level of depth around this is is unbelievable but fundamentally it, it's such a simple cycle simple. isn't it yes such it's a simple. simple cycle when you open your well maybe when that lens maybe this is a good time for us to get into the exposure triangle so because it's really that that lens that again i've read your your middle book uh, or most of it again as i said and even through this conversation there's another level of lens opening for me around some of this so sh- share a bit the exposure triangle what is this exposure triangle what are the three parts that we need to understand how this relates to awareness. Yeah, I just want to add this to the previous conversation before we go to this. Yeah, it's it's simple, but it's not easy. Mm, absolutely. That, that is the thing, yeah. Like so many things in life. Yeah, and, and <laughs> often, you know, like we get to this logical fallacy in our brain as human beings that sometimes we think that the solution to the complex problems should be complex. Now, one of, one of the things that sometimes I hear, you know, some, some people have said about the being discourse, they say, oh, you know, these, what are these, what is new about this? These are all common sense. I go, yeah, that's my point. But, but the problem is they're not very common. So, for example, assertiveness is one of the qualities that is extremely important. But our empirical data is showing. You know, we have thousands of people that have con- uh, completed the being profile. So we, we know our empirical data is telling us that not many people are actually assertive. They don't have a healthy relationship with assertiveness. And that gets in their way. So, yeah, it's it's simple, but it's not easy. I think on that point, because it, it certainly does come up in conversation, let's just, let's just unpack a little bit around assertiveness. What's the definition of assertiveness? What does assertiveness mean in the being framework? Yeah, so actually it's good. Do you want to read the distinction? Do you know where it is? Yeah, so just... Maybe you can help us reading it. So assertiveness is when you express yourself effectively and stand up for your point of view while also being respectful respectful of others. It is the willingness to express your thoughts and feelings and communicate your needs and expectations firmly and directly while being considerate of others and aware of any subsequent consequences of being assertive. Assertiveness is being resolute, straight, firm, and effective. 
Yeah. And then if you see, if you read the healthy relationship. A healthy relationship with assertiveness indicates that you are predominantly straight and unambiguous in your communication with others. You rarely resort to threats or attempt to manipulate outcomes and are transparent with your motives. You are bold in communicating your and others' needs and expectations in terms of the outcomes required or expected. You are comfortable letting others know how you feel and express yourself without emotional outbursts. How does that work in meetings? Well, so I mean, like, that's a very broad question. but <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> well, you take the, it wherever you like to go. No, so the, the thing is, uh, that's a very... Let me let me create a little bit more context here before we jump in. See, you remember we said that like your brain uh, is um, trapped in into the skull, but your mind is not trapped. That's a thing, and we have this powerful way of uh, imagining things beyond even you know like the physical experiences. So, and also we have the ability, we have this capability of transforming our relationship with different perceptions if it makes sense, yeah? So we talked about what we are and we said that there are commonalities between people. So for example, everyone has a relationship with fear. Everyone has a a relationship with anxiety. Now, we relate to them differently. Let's acknowledge that. But then no one is there to say, oh, I don't know what fear is. You know, I'm a fearless. That's a very massive inauthenticity. We don't have fearless people. What we have, we have courageous people. We have people, we have some of us in some of the cases that we step forward despite the presence of fear, let's say, yeah? So everyone and your book relates talks to it. about, like, you need fear in order to be courageous. You, you, you can put it that way, yeah, yeah. So, so therefore, there are certain qualities that, it's part of the package of being human being. But then how you are is different slightly with, uh, to, to what you are. What you are is like this series of qualities that we all have corresponding in, in kind or type that makes us being the same species. But then when it comes to how you then relate to each of these qualities, we differ. And the good news is you don't, you're not trapped in that. You don't have to relate to, for example, confidence, authenticity, assertiveness, the way that you used to do even two days ago. We can transform. We're not fixed objects. So your brain is trapped into your skull, but your mind is not trapped in any kind of box as far as you choose to. So, so that's basically where I talk about transformability and transformation. We can, we can relate to these qualities differently. What you just read, the distinction of assertiveness, it's not like I'm defining what assertiveness is. Now, I'm not, if, for example, someone says assertiveness to me is this or that, I don't make them wrong. I, I just say that this is the quality that I found to be extremely important when it comes to effectiveness, leadership, performance. And I mean, with being profiled, the assessment tool we have associated with this, that's the quality we measure. That's all we say. We don't make anyone wrong. Therefore, I call them distinctions, not definitions. Yeah? So, so that is the quality that I've realized uh, through my studies. It's extremely important. Uh, hence, we have, the, we have this quality as one of the 31. So your question was like, how does it work like in meetings? I mean, it depends. It depends on who you are in meeting with. So let's say it, it, it often happens that if you're dealing with aggressive, overly disagreeable people, and then you, if you are being also overly disagreeable person or aggressive person, then we're going to end up having a fight. 
And you see that, like, if you're looking to what's, for example, going on uh, in the world, let's say Russia and Russia and Ukraine. So this is this is the thing, you know, we get to a point that the leaders, they can work it out, like one or both, they are being overly disagreeable. It, it leads to aggression. It leads to violence. So now, so, but the thing is, when we're talking about assertive, being assertive, is like you being resolute, you being firm. You're not overly submissive, overly agreeable. You're not aggressive or overly disagreeable. You're not being nice. You're not being nasty. You're straight. You're firm. You you know what you want out of this negotiation. You know what you what your communication is. You you are at ease to say your real yeses and nos. That's the quality that we're talking about here. And the beauty, like any of these things, the beauty of this is not in, let's say, awareness in isolation. It's how you have the relationship with awareness in context to all the other elements because even that situation you referred to about someone being disagreeable, you need to bring in some other elements of the 31 ways of being which will maybe allow your assertiveness and your healthy relationship with assertiveness to play out a certain way that can maybe uh, reduce the level of disagreeableness and, and have some sort of meaningful conversation. Definitely, definitely. See, you know, sometimes because I, I practiced martial art, you know, I, I still practice martial art. I used to do karate, kyokushin, ah, and then I You've just Aikido. added context. So if you were running at me, like you said before, <laughs> now I know this, <laughs> I'm running the other uh, way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the thing is, if you're not naive in a sense that we are living this kind of utopian understanding of the word, we know that crime is there. We know that there are people that, you know, crime is the extreme part of that, but in corporates, you know, you know all these politics are going on, you know, that ego, mm-hmm. ego is like pe- people's um, um, shadow side of ego, unhealthy relationship with their ego gets in the way. It just So the thing is, if I'm not being naive, I know that there, there are threads out there. Not everyone's coming to you with the best intentions possible. Now, if you are projecting if you're being and projecting this persona that you're naive, you're nice, you're overly agreeable, you're submissive, it's very likely that you're going to be misused or you're going to be oppressed and you're going to suppress yourself. So therefore, it's very important for us to be powerful. So, you know, sometimes power, there's this negative connotation associated with power. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about exerting your power over someone else. I'm talking about you feeling being confident in your own skin. You know that you are you have choices. You know that you can say your real yeses and no's and you're willing to be dealing with consequences that comes with it. Now if you if if you're projecting this thing that see I'm polite, I'm not posing any threat, I'm virtuous in a sense, yeah. I'm polished and I don't want to pose anything, but I'm capable of, of it. That on itself, that on itself, like you are powerful, you are capable of posing threat if there is an attack, that on itself is going to make the other person, perhaps the ones that are not coming with the best intentions, to be on their toes a little bit. So, see, the, the, the offenders, often when you look into criminology, 
they often choose the weak, the, the choose the one who's more timid because like who wants to get, you know, like mess up with the one who can scream and who can, who can, you know, stand the course and, you know, you, they want easy target. So therefore, you know, like assertiveness is extremely important. Now, if you want to bring it in the corporate, you know, in the business world, it's like many people want to negotiate their pays. That actually comes up a lot, but then they don't know how to approach it. They don't know how to bring a conversation up, you know, and, and sometimes they just suppress themselves and sometimes them being very aggressive or passive aggressive about it. They just go to the organization, oh, I want the pay rise. You know, okay, so why we should be uh, giving you more money? Are you going to bring more value? Are you going to take more responsibility? Well, I haven't thought about it that way, but I want it. This other company is going to give me more money. So do you or go? You know what I mean? So, so, so therefore, on multiple different ends, from the employer to the employee, you know, being assertive is extremely important. Or, you know, sometimes amongst the team, we work with different teams, if we have a couple teams ourselves, when the environment, the culture of the team is in a way that people can be assertive with each other. It's not like no one is trying to make the other person uncomfortable. It's not personal. Yeah, but they can directly talk to each other when things are not in place and hold each other to account. But then if if you're going to now like three times think about, okay, so if should I say this way, should I say that way? Will this person take offense or not? Like will this lead to me being made redundant you know should I bring this thing up if you're creating that kind of an environment if the majority of the people in the team are not being assertive there's going to be you know hidden conversations going on there's going to be like it leads to not healthy yeah an an unhealthy environment it's going to lead to and it it impacts um, workability Mm, absolutely and effectiveness yeah Mm. which I think all business people should be extremely uh, concerned with Absolutely. Let, let's go back to the the leader, this the person, the individual, and again back to the exposure triangle or unpacking that. How is your term this exposure triangle? The elements of it. Why is this so important to understand? So I think that we have created a good amount of context so far in the conversation that how important it is for us, especially from a leadership perspective, to have authentic awareness or live life from the viewpoint of. A willingness to gradually develop congruent conceptions of different fragments of reality. That's basically the, the original intention behind education when we are kids, yeah? You're being sent to school. I know that you know, it, it doesn't happen like fully like that, especially nowadays like we deal with lots of uh, indoctrination. But putting that aside, so, so you're being sent to the school and you go to school so that then gradually you develop this more congruent, authentic conception of different fragments of reality. Why? Because life is going to be challenging. It's going to bring lots of challenges for you. And the more equipped you are, the likelihood of you being crushed under all these things, that these matters that life is going to bring to you, will drastically decrease. You're going to be more equipped to respond appropriately to the matters that life brings to you, regardless of the source, which is part of the distinction responsibility in the model. The way I sort of frame this when I was reading it and also preparing for today's interview, it's like the exposure triangle. I know you use the analogy of a of a camera, a camera yeah. in the mm. book, but it was almost like it's the door for me and it's the opening the door 
and there's these elements that make up the door, but then it's those elements that determine what I see that's on the other side of the door. Yeah. Does you, that make you, sense? You, you, yeah, you can put it that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm a, I say it often, I'm a really simple man. No, that, and that, I need to try and keep it really simple because, for me. See, at the end of the day, if if any philosophy, this is my pr- deep belief around all this, that's why it's a concern for me so that we can bridge this conversation. I mean, if, if the philosophy that is being created or articulated, if all these engineering pieces, all these models, all these frameworks, if they're not leading, if they're not being communicated effectively, if they're not being received pr- effectively and being put in practice, yeah. If they're not making our life better, if they're not uh, supporting us in the betterment of our experience of life, I think it's a completely different thing. You know, I don't want to insult the people that they are in that realm. You know, I am not in the game of just keep intellectualizing the word for the sake of it. Yeah, that's a completely different game. No, this is this is about the philosophy of achievement. This is a this is about integrity of our life, setting our life, setting our organization in such a way that it works for us. Yeah, that's what. So you're doing a great job. I mean, that's by the satisfaction, this. isn't it? I mean, for the the amount of blood, sweat, and tears you put onto this work, and you've got so much other work in in line to to do, and and probably already started. But it's that's the satisfying part of of being a leader, being able to have some influence and the impact in a really positive way on people's yeah, lives. I think so. in no yeah. sense just intellectualizing the work and then looks great these books on a bookshelf, but the application is is the real key of it. Yeah, that's a definitely a concern. Therefore, like even with our practice, this is the, the non-fiction coaching. to fiction element yes. trying to make that more practical. Yes, of course, or relatable, I should say. Yes, and that's what I was basically saying that you're doing a great job by ensuring that like the conversation is being more tangible and practical, people can relate to it. So, yeah, I was saying that like we've created a good amount of context that why. Uh, having congruent authentic concepts of reality matters because like you're not going to be crushed when uh, all these matters in life are coming at you so you're going to be far more equipped yeah so want more powerful people more powerful leaders that they can actually push towards i mean the the next the take we can take us to the next level you know we evolve so let me create this thing what I call it, fulfillment pyramid. Before we go to the exposure triangle, yeah. So these are my terms. Like uh, we will we'll work in. So see, there is this phenomenological fact. Is people say that why should why should, why bother? Why should be even polishing myself? As you say, polish. Or why why transformation? I'll, I'll go well because we care. Because you care. I care about what? I mean, I don't know. You care about something. We all have intentions that we want them to be fulfilled. Yeah. Now you may ask why, and that's a completely different uh, conversation. Where our intentions or will are coming from? It's, it can be quite philosophical. Let's park that. What we know is phenomenologically speaking, basically, it's a common human experience. That's a simple language. So it's a common human experience that we care about things. Certain things. You care about certain things. I care about certain things. I don't say that uh, everyone should be take, caring about similar things. We're not defining any purpose, meaning, tell us. Yeah, we're saying that you work it out for yourself. But but you 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 have things that you care about. Some people want to build thriving families. Some people want to create lucrative career and then build their things. Some people want to focus more on societal matters and you know being activists and, and yeah. raising awareness around something. Uh, affecting changes. Whatever you care about, you care about something. 
Now, this is, it is also a common human experience that when you care about something, you want them being fulfilled. That's a common human experience as well. Now, the, the logic now behind this is in order for you to fulfill the very intentions you most care about, you need to be effective. You need to be effective in your endeavors, in your decisions and actions. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And in order for any system, like let's com- consider human being a system here. Yeah? I'm not downgrading or reducing human being to robots, but we are a system. We are also a system. So in order for any system to be effective, to have that workability element, it needs to have its constituent parts to work in an optimum level, at an optimum level. For example, let's say take our physical health. In order for us to have integrity yeah, or homeostasis, that's a technical term in me- medicine. So in order for us to have this, stay be in this state of homeostasis, yeah, integrity, being healthy, you, you need to have your kidneys operating in an op- optimum level. You need to have your bone structure, skeleton. You know, they have, we have 11 different systems in our uh, overall system um, that they need to operate in, the, in an optimum level. Yeah? And every whole con- consists of parts, obviously. Uh, that applies to, like, let's say, mechanical watches, the same. Like We have the cogs in the machine, and each of them should be operating in an optimum level. Even if the tiniest one, uh, the little cog that it may not be seen as very significant, mm-hmm. if that there is any malfunction there, the, the workability of the overall system is going to be under question. So therefore, we said that in order for us to fulfill the very intentions we, ca- we most care about, we need to be effective in our endeavors and our decisions and behaviors. In order for any system to be effective, then it needs to have its constituent parts to operate in an optimum level. The system needs to have integrity or it needs to be integrous. Yeah? It needs to have, in- you need to be of integrity being integrous. And in order for us to even identify, authentically see through what constituent parts are there, we need to have awareness. We need to, we need to have awareness. We need to go and then be able to identify these constituent parts so that then we can bring our attention, intentional consciousness, making ourselves present to those, uh, identify which one is now operating at an optimum level and which one not, which one requires addressing, yeah? That's basically what we're doing using the ontological model in a limited, narrow scope. We're saying that what are these qualities that they matter the most? Yeah. Obviously, here we're talking about more abstract conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not like the physical thing. Yeah. Um, and that makes it harder in, in certain sense. So we want to look into those areas and we go, okay, so how I'm relating to this aspect of my being? You know, how I'm relating to responsibility? Is that a duty, obligation, a burden I need to carry throughout my life? And therefore, there is a kind of resentment I have. Or, no, it's actually a blessing. It's a kind of a unique, powerful quality that we as a human being have. I get to choose. I have this high, relatively high degree of autonomy. I can actually influence the, the, the outcome of things. Not maybe 100%. We're not gods, but but to a good extent, you know, like we can influence it. So, so therefore, awareness matters. We need to be able to look into and uh, these these constituent parts, yeah, 
and beyond. But here we're talking about and identify these different parts, constituent parts, and see if we are being if we are having a healthy relationship with them or not, or if there are shadow parts that are required and that they, they require maintenance, addressing, or uh, transformation. So now, if you put all these things together, they basically shape the layer that I call the meta factors. That's a kind of generic term I'm using. It's awareness, integrity, and effectiveness. And that's how and it's like we always dance from a degree of awareness to a degree of effectiveness. Yeah. And what sits in the middle is integrity and the constituent parts of the integrity. You know. So so that's basically the 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 meta factors and now when it comes with, with the meta factors what's is any of your imperial data any of the research you've done to get to this level is there anything that is common stopping people's touching on that first point of awareness like what what holds people back is there anything that's a really great question because see as you know, you know, in the first book, there was no conversation about like uh, exposure triangle. That analogy came a year after uh, the first book was published because it was the empirical data that taught me that there is a pattern that it needs it needs more attention in the beginning. You know what I mean? So yes, there are thirty-one different qualities, but then I realized that there is a particular significance associated with awareness, vulnerability, and authenticity. And that basically shaped the whole thing around this analogy that I use, uh, I say exposure triangle, that we can unpack it a little bit today in the rest of the conversation. But yeah, so because it's through these three major qualities that we constantly take snapshots of different fragments of reality. That's how, how we are receiving. That's how we are in, interacting or perceiving, first, first of all, perceiving different things that are going on out there. So our situational awareness, our self-awareness. So when it comes to awareness, is like in the analogy, I use uh, these three major uh, configuration, I mean, like the configuration of cameras. Um, we talk about like aperture, ISO and shutter speed, yeah? Mm. So, you know, like there's some experts out there and you know, don't pick on me, I'm not a pro- photographer. This is just basically an analogy so that we make it more, bring it home for people. So the thing is, if these configurations in a camera is not properly set, you're not going to have the most vivid, clear picture of that reality that you're trying to capture. So similar to that, like these three qualities of awareness, authenticity, and vulnerability play a similar role for our perceptual system. That's how I use it. So awareness is being seen like an aperture, like aperture in in the camera, is like the the amount of light that you're, you're letting in to the lens. So light here being the knowledge, the authentic knowledge that's coming in, yeah? ISO is being seen as authenticity here, or authenticity is being seen as, as ISO, is the the, sensitive, the sensitivity of the sensor 
to that information to you're delight. receiving. Yes. Mm. So how you, you respond versus react potentially. Exactly. Are you considering the validity of these opinions and beliefs that you're sh- you, shaping? Are you lenient and fickle? You just like you just believe whatever, or you mm. do a kind of a reality check in a sense, yeah. And then, and lastly, is vulnerability in that analogy is like shutter speed. You know, to what extent you're going to have the, or how long you're going to have the uh, shutter being open. Like for example, like if you're uh, taking this photo in at nighttime when it's dark and there's not much light going on, you may need to leave the the shutter open for seconds or even minutes so that you can capture this clear. A picture, yeah. When there's when you're in low light conditions, so, so yeah. So similar to the camera, like when it comes to us human beings, we constantly be we are exposing ourselves to so much content out there, mm-hmm. and and we're constantly taking snapshots of that reality, and we're storing that, and it becomes the experiences that uh, you know, like we have as reference points in. Pre- pre- Remember when we were talking about categories from a psychological perspective, said that what your brain does is like it's basically creating this category of instances in the past that are similar to certain things that are going on in the present so that it can predict what's going to happen next. So that's basically how we use this analogy. Is there a, those words, awareness, authenticity, vulnerability, Fantastic words in the leadership space. We, we get that. Vulnerability, that's a key thing. We're always talking about vulnerability-based trust. Can you leave the shutter open too long? Is there an unhealthy relationship with, with, with vulnerability? Well, or a, There is an unhealthy, but is it, is it healthy to be vulnerable all the time? So, so let's, let's get something first clear before I address that question around vulnerability. See, it's not like you are vulnerable, but I'm not. It's not like we have vulnerable people and then we have invulnerable people. Uh, We are vulnerable. That's an ontological fact. It's not even a construct. It's a fact, yeah? So you are thrown into this world when you're a baby. You are vulnerable to so many different things. You cannot even feed yourself. You cannot see properly. You cannot move properly. Even passing gas is going to be a challenge for you at that age when you're a baby. So you so are dependent on your carers, your mother, father, whoever is caring and taking care of you. And then this this continues. You know? So you, you are vulnerable because you cannot express what's going on for you. You don't have ability to articulate things. Then therefore you scream and you throw things and then you just cry. And it keeps going. You know? no, we are vulnerable to diseases. We are vulnerable to all, all these un, un, not discovered yet viruses we are vulnerable to natural disasters you know no matter of like this geoengineering that we have done so far we we aim to go into the mars you know we think that through geoengineering we're going to create life there and my my conversation is like if we have that level of geo geo geoengineering capabilities why not to revive to revive the same planet that we are in do we know that much i'm not sure are we capable of even predicting these volcanoes and uh, flood and everything? And are we being, re- are we responding appropriately to that or not? But so we are vulnerable to all that. We are also vulnerable to our angry neighbor. We are vulnerable to our cheating partner. We are vulnerable to our own self. You know, like all these temptations that we have, all these like self-sabotaging 
victimizing thoughts that we have, et cetera, et cetera. So we are vulnerable. You're also vulnerable to a single little 20 grain bullet, you know? So we are vulnerable. Now, the question is not whether you're vulnerable or not. The question is, are you living life from that viewpoint or not? Are you in acknowledgement that you are vulnerable as a human being or not? Because sometimes you're in this pretense thinking, oh, I'm a superman, I'm a superwoman. And we put so much expectations on ourselves and everyone else around us. And then those expectations, they become the source of suffering and anxiety. And, you know, as if like life should go the way that I wish. I, you know, these days people talk about, I identify as this and that. I'll go like the great problem there is like sometimes we think that we are identifying as gods. But then the reality is not, we are not God, even collectively, and then that creates suffering. So, so therefore, we are vulnerable is like whether you leave life from that viewpoint or you're in this pretense. So when you said that to be vulnerable is like, we, we want to be open. We want to have this epistemic humility, basically having our cup being empty, letting uh, the new knowledge to be poured in it take a sip and then see how it goes. So, But vulnerability should not be seen as a weakness or being seen as being naive or gullible. If you're seeing, seeing vulnerability, actually owning your vulnerability, whether the general vulnerability that is associated with all of us human beings, and every single individual has their own vulnerabilities. Yeah? So I may have certain disabilities, I may have certain you know, problems that I deal with, or wounds or something like that, traumas that I've gone through. Now, owning your vulnerability is so powerful that no one can hold them against you. So basically, a healthy relationship with vulnerability is owning your vulnerabilities, taking that into consideration whenever you're making critical decisions in your life. Therefore, by being vulnerable, we're not saying that being naive or gullible led yourself to be taken advantage of. This is a distinction. Yeah, thank you for sharing. What impact does environment have around awareness, authenticity, and vulnerability? There's massive, massive influence it has. So I guess let me frame the context of what's in my head is that leader in a a certain type of organization that maybe has unhealthy relationships with lots of things, therefore unhealthy culture, whatever that looks like in organization. So there's an environment they're playing out and they're trying to, they're they're working on their being, they're, they're trying to be more in a healthy state and all these. Tell us more about that. Massive influence. See, especially you see it like, for example, when my experiences with academia, with media, with few politicians in the corporate world that I was more exposed in corporate world, there's no doubt there's this toxicity and there's this office politics and everything. It's quite common to see, I would like to say, unfortunately, that the people that are occupying position of power, the people that are occupying leadership roles are not necessarily leaders. And, And that has to do with us, by the way. Because, see... So, so what, what do you mean when you say that they're not necessarily leaders? So when I'm saying leaders, like they're not polished in terms of being, yeah? So they're not the most committed, they're not the most assertive, they're not the most authentic, they're not the most, and the list goes on, responsible. And we see that, you know, I mean, like this is not something... They've hidden. got unhealthy I mean, relationships with all 31 ways of being. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so for example, like many, I'm not saying all politicians, but, you know, like many, many politicians are far more concerned systematically, yeah, 
because they want to be re-elected, let's say. So they're more concerned to be seen doing the right things than even, actually... Even that, and again, it, my head goes straight to, okay, there's the individual component, yes. which is it within the system, but the system also has a major influence on that, which is the environment, right? Yes, yes. Again, there's it's, yes, it's nothing, I know, and I know the way you are, it's not, nothing's in absolutes, but all of these components of the bigger thing are enabling, or, or people are choosing to have these ways of being around these systems that they're part of. That's actually a really good conversation to have. Yeah. See? Do we have another uh, two train, hours to unpack? By, <laughs> by, by train, yeah. I'm a system we we might need to do a part two and a part three. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so by train, I'm a system designer. Yeah, I, I, one of my degrees actually is like information system design. Yeah. And I think I understand, I have a good understanding of systems, not only just technological systems, but system engineering. One thing that often we miss when we're talking about systems and then, you know, procedures and processes and, you know, is we ignore the fact that these systems, they have system designers. So these systems are designed by people. So... By going in and then, you know, it's it's quite easy and it's very common that when something is not working out for me or for us, we go and then blame the system or we, you know, point down the system. Oh, capitalism is this and that, cancerous, and, you know, a disease or, you know, oh, this system or that system, you know. We, we create all these problems and we, we bring lots of this criticism to the system and maybe there there are, you know, like you can draw criticism to anything so that they can refine, be refined or fixed or, you know, I'm not saying that there there's nothing to be fixed. Of course, there's things to be fixed. There are heaps of things to be fixed. But the thing is this immediate thing that when something's not working out for me, I just go and then blame the system. So it's not just system, uh, you know, like you can you cannot come up with a better system because sometimes, especially if you're ideologically driven, we think that our ideology, particularly political ideology or economical ideology, has a complete theory of everything. Yeah, and that's a kind of in lack of vulnerability. And we think that you know, if we go left or we go right and we go have this and that, we're going to have better thing going on. The thing is, we're not going to end up having better systems unless we develop better people. I mean, better people. Yeah? Now, I would use the language of more effective and more integrous or uh, polished people. Yeah? Um, so, because we cannot go and bring those people, those perfect people from the Mars to come here and then create us better systems. So, we are the ones who are going to take the responsibility and put the effort to build these better systems. Hence, we said that in second layer reality, we want to negotiate negotiate these realities that we're creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we want we want to be open and then have the discussion, have the conversation, have taking this pluralistic view of letting different uh, perspectives to contribute in creating this more comprehensive understanding of something. Hence, diversity matters. True diversity, not just tokenism, like have like people from every. No, actually having because people from diverse backgrounds they have very different perspective of the similar thing and the more perspective you have the likelihood of you getting closer to the totality of that very matter is going to exponentially increase so it's better not to suppress yeah and let let everyone 
to contribute into the creation. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone's perspective is useful or useful at this, uh, the, the, equally. Sometimes, you know, like we need to have certain perspective coming in, go, Yo, you know what, this doesn't fit into this at all. It's it, Not only it's not contributing to the creation of this more comprehensive conception of this very thing, but actually it deviates us from that. So that's also there. But in a, as a general rule, letting different perspectives, diverse perspectives come in and then support us and contribute to the creation of this more comprehensive conception of that very thing, it helps a lot. You can see, again, we've talked about the limitation to our perceptual system. We know that we cannot, we don't have direct access to the truth of the matters. We don't, we know. Even collectively, even collectively. So there are so many things we don't have consensus. Yeah. So therefore, Therefore, we know this vulnerability. We go, okay, how about this? You become expert in that. I become expert in another thing. You become, and then we we come in together and then we see it from multiple different perspectives and then we expand our conception of whatever that is. So basically what we were talking about is, yeah, so in long story short, in order for us to to have better systems in place, we want to have better people. We, we want to become better people, hence becoming the name of this book. So we want to become these better people, transform people, polished people, whatever way you want to put it, however way you want to put it. So So therefore, it goes back to individuals again. We need to start from ourselves. Now, you know, like uh, certain matters that are being discussed, things like climate change or, I don't know, like certain things that it may appear and may be, may be far beyond personal responsibility. But at the end of the day, like you want to align people around any of these topics. I'm not saying that we should go for it or against it or anything. What I'm saying is if, if you feel so strong about it, if you think that you have empirical data or whatever basically you have, uh, you need to go and then create campaigns around it. You need to co- create awareness. And you don't necessarily see if you're living in an era that you know, everyone is... Uh, everyone has access to YouTube, everyone has access to so many different channels that they can broadcast their ideas and everything. And then if if whatever you are articulating, it resonates with a good number of people and everything, that awareness, that collective awareness is going to be created. And then, so that, that's the pathway. You know, that's a pathway. And that's a thing. So it goes back to individuals again. That's, that's one, what my point is. Yeah, and that's why I, I so focus on instead of going and criticizing this system or that system or this politician or that politician or this political party or that political party, my focus is actually go to people and uh, and say, let's start from within. I know that it's a kind of cliche, you know, that's a kind of approach that many have taken throughout the history, but I'll go, let's start from here. If, if you see the lack of integrity out, outside of you in the environment and everything, so let's start from here and go from roots up. Now, when it comes to the organizations and everything, so let's make it more tangible, this conversation. Yeah. So, so when it comes to organizations, it happens a lot that perhaps a person is in the position of decision-making, maybe your boss the manager leader is not is not the most refined the most polished the most uh, person and if it's like so, so severe and you feel so strong about that you may choose to go to another organization choose another leader to subscribe to you go to a different environment and then see if if objectively 
if objectively some organizations are having a very toxic environment and there's not enough number of people subscribing to that, they're doomed to go away. Because an organization without a person, without, without people, is nothing. So they can go and then they can build their own businesses. They can go and uh, join another organizations. So that's the thing. If you're not being assertive, yeah, if you're fearful, if you don't have a healthy relationship with like uh, confidence, et cetera, et cetera, you may keep yourself in that environment. Yeah, you may suppress yourself. You may feel so bad, carry this resentment, and you may feel that you have no options. Well, in some respects, I think that you know that famous famous phrase, the tipping point. We're far from at the tipping point of good culture and the majority of organizations having whatever they determine as good culture. So maybe the other phrase that comes to mind is people don't always think that the grass is greener on the other side, do they? Yes, that's correct. So yeah. they're feeling stuck. Yeah. Now, when, when it comes to organizations, and as we work with, you know, like many organizations at the moment that are using the being, the tapping into the being framework and the associated tools and the coaches and everything around it. The thing is, See, when it comes to, for example, project management, many organizations, corporations, SMEs, you know, they tap into some sort of methodology. For example, like in, in terms of pro- project management, you know, as an example, they may tap into Prince2 methodology. They may tap into Agile Scrum methodology, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow, for some reason, when it comes to people side, then it's just like it's our culture and then they customize something. Or... They don't give it what it takes. It's like being overlooked, yeah? So one of the intentions that I had, particularly with the being discourse, it was like there is this framework required, a kind of fundamental language and series of uh, tools so that we create that kind of mutual language so that we can then discuss matters. So you want to create a, a level of shared mental models so that then people can talk effectively, can communicate effectively, mm-hmm and pinpoint the things that are missing. So that's one of the benefits that I think this, this conversation is bringing to people already. Sort of creating, again, in the improvement type world, it's, you can only improve on top of a standard. So you're creating some standard. There's a, see a, a framework. There's a standard. People have got standard language attached to that framework, and we're starting from here, and then we can move, yeah. move on yeah. from that, yeah. um, which is very common. As far as the... The three books that are in front of us. Again, one of these becoming is uh, very, very hot off the press. And actually, is, wh- when is sort of general? When is the launch date for? Actually, becoming? this is this is you know as I've told you before the interview. This is this is a sample copy. Mm-hmm. We got it to see if it's coming out well and nice. And mm-hmm. fortunately, it is. Happy. Yeah, happy <laughs> because it's often it's a very tedious process. You know, when you go to the print work. So the the ebook version we made it available. It's already up there and people can go and access it. And for a limited time, it's quite like well-priced so that then more people can access the book. And we'll, they, we'll put all these details in the show notes sure, as well. Thank you. Thank you. But the official launch day, so the book is published officially, but the official launch day that basically we're going to have a number of people from our community. We're going to talk to the book and, you know, uh, have that. It's going to be online on Zoom. And if anyone's interested, like I can share 
the event page on our platform and then you can Absolutely. share it with people. It's, you know, more than welcome. Anyone who wants to join. And we will be discussing like in two hours, like we're going to discuss like things around the book, around the discourse. So the people that have already benefited from the framework is going to be there. But yeah, mainly we're going to talk about it that like because often we see that due to particularly due to lack of vulnerability, there's this kind of resistance sometimes. We don't want to face the shadow side of us. We don't want to look into the mirror. And that's a kind of experience many would have in the beginning when we're dealing with new knowledge. And the the story here in this book, uh, Becoming the Emergence of Being, is the story of uh, Joran Haley, like the fictional character that can represent many of us what, what was Euron's other name? What do you mean? <laughs> you, did, you had to change the name, didn't you? No, no, we oh. didn't know. That was not oh, Euron. Oh, that one was no. Okay, oh, that's all right. So he's still <laughs> yeah. living. Yeah, so, so uh, the story is like um, about Euron who on the surface, what is visible from outside, it's like he has a lucrative corporate career. He's like in his late 30s. Uh, he has a loving fiance, and uh, some of some of these materialistic on the surface things. And now, while like he's being seen as this person who has his finances, you know, ticked, but then like there's so much debt and everything is going on. So basically, what is appearing on the surface is far away from what down deep there is going on for him. Uh, down deep, he's lost, stuck, confused. In, in in his encounterment with the being the scores and uh, working with the with a coach who basically guides him through some of these things, despite the massive tremendous amount of resistance he shows in the beginning, then gradually comes to this paradigm and put his guard down and start considering that there is other alternative ways that he can relate to some of these qualities of hu- human being. And um, yeah, so his intention, his his intention has always been to build the business of his own. And many of these um, qualities of him, like his aspects of being, his being, uh, so far has been getting, as getting in his way. Yeah. So in this book, like the the idea is not like to to show that he's building a business. Uh, it doesn't go there at that stage. Is more like removing. The, or addressing the blockages that are getting in his way, fulfilling his very intention. Now, now you know people of many different like backgrounds. They can still relate to Yoren. Uh, like it's not like only men, for example, or only yeah. So the people that I want to build businesses, uh, whatever intention they have, like the still the book is going to be extremely valuable to them. Yeah. So that's basically what what is happening with this book. I don't know if this was intentional, but again, for me, it sort of feels like you've started with the end in mind. There's being, there's human being, and there's becoming. If someone was to take an interest in what we've spoken about today and think, well, this is, this is really interesting, is this where you'd start? Uh, it depends. See, you know, like becoming book, becoming the, the emergence of being is designed for a person who uh, is a fiction, you know, like it's fiction. But many of the stories are rooted in reality. Yeah? So if they enjoy uh, reading uh, novel-like, I mean, fictional stories, 
and that they they it, it's more entertaining. It's mm. it's like there is like storyline going on and everything. That's a good starting point. That's a good starting point. It's designed to be, I mean, establishing that relevance for a broader audience. If they're more into like they they are more familiar with like reading more directly, I wouldn't consider Human Being Book being a self-help book. But I mean, if they are accustomed to reading um, self-help books or, you know, uh, the books that directly talk to them, I think Human Being Book is easier read in comparison with a being book like mm. it's like 300 pages ish you know while the being book uh, while is being book is not philosophical in a sense it's not like academic or something like that but there's more depth in, into the being so i would say that either start with the becoming book or the human being book depends on if they like fiction or or a more direct way of uh, looking into it uh, the framework and then if it interests them and then they find more value in it, they want to find more value, they can definitely go and then study the being book. The being book is basically is the exposition of the whole framework. Uh, actually, I mean, it's like close to 700 pages and uh, it is a book to be studied. While it still has a smooth narrative, it is a book to, to be studied, not just read quickly. You know? With the regards to the human being book, we have the audible audio version as well like if they want to listen to it with becoming books soon that is going to be available in in coming weeks but then becoming book we we just did this auto generated uh, thing like on uh, i think google books or something which which they still can listen to it but it's not a kind of book to actually listen to yeah it's better to study than everything and yeah yeah, that's what, I, again, I haven't even said it's just new, so becoming, I look forward to checking that out. But with the way that I process information, and I think you said it best when you said appealing to the masses, I, I would consider myself in that, even though I've got an interest in this space and the work I do, it feels like the story, that fiction element creates the narrative and the context around it for more people to relate to. And then if they want to dive that little bit deeper, again, I, I haven't read Being, but Human Being took took me to another level and then being sounds like the the ultimate encyclopedia almost to to and, and the ultimate reference yes that's correct ashcan the last question we ask all of our guests is what's the one thing that has helped you become a more confident leader you're going to tell us about your healthy or unhealthy relationship with confidence <laughs> <laughs> sure so when often we talk about confidence it may be read more as like self-confidence or being self-assured only but your relationship with confidence i'm just creating the context before you're answering your question is like um, we all deal with dilemmas we all deal deal with hesitation doubts uncertainties that's a see if especially if you are a pioneer in some uh, areas, if, if you are a leader, if you are traveling an organization from point A to point B, uh, you're going to jump into unknown territories all the time. So as business leaders, we all deal with unstructured problems. It's not a pure engineering. Yeah, That's a difference between uh, taking it a kind of a... You, you cannot engineer everything. So we all know that. And therefore, it's extremely important to make yourself at ease and comfortable when it comes to dealing with these uncertainties. Yeah? So if you have a healthy relationship with confidence, it's not like you, you are fully trusting 
even your competency or proficiency in something, because no matter how com- com- competent you are, there is still a chance of making mistakes and, you know, all those things. So therefore, it's like setting the expectation. A healthy relationship with confidence is like when you set the expectation for yourself. Let's see. I know that I'm dealing with all these. I will be dealing with these uncertainties. I need to be traveling in unexplored territories. I need to jump into uh, unknown. And I know that all these hesitations and doubts and uncertainties are going to come up. How am I going to be with that? Am I choosing to be at ease with that or not? So, so therefore, it's like, so if you take it like a pendulum, so on one side, an unhealthy relationship with confidence is going to be being being constantly in hesitance. I mean, being being quite hesitant and staying there, not momentarily, but you're stuck there. Uh, on the other side, you, you can be overconfident or bringing bravado. It's like uh, you're being careless in a sense that you just jump into things and you assume that things are going to be working. And you're you're going to be this person who's just like jumping into uh, taking uncalculated risks. You'd like, yeah. So therefore, the middle side of this pendulum is like the healthy relationship with confidence. So in in that sense, like creating that distinction. So I think that uh, my confidence will come from. Or what what makes me makes me to be more confident or having healthy relationship with com- uh, confidence is my ease and, and comfort around being with uncertainties and and unknowns and hesitations and dilemmas. Yeah, it's not necessarily coming from tremendous amount of competence I have in everything. I don't. Yeah, and there are many many different areas I don't have confidence, but I set the expectations and I trust that this is how it is. And this is part of the process. And yeah, so that's basically what I have to say about confidence. I like it. My takeaway from that is a sense of being comfortable with the inevitable uncomfortableness that is going to happen. Yes. Yeah. And that can be sometimes misleading when we say comfortable because like in a sense, we are not comfortable, but being comfortable with your lack of comfort, as you said. Yeah. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you you very much for coming on our show being in person as well, sharing your insights. Um, really good. Really appreciate your insights, mate. Thanks for being a great guest on The Cultural Leadership. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. At The Culture of Leadership, we've always believed better people become better leaders. Better leaders develop better teams. Better teams create a better culture and a better culture delivers better results. We're in perfect alignment with Ashcan and his research. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Ashcan. My first key takeaway, confident leaders take control over their life. The Being Profile is an assessment tool designed to measure your relationship with the 31 aspects of being. Understanding your relationship between each of these qualities and how they affect your behaviors and actions will allow you to be more deliberate in taking greater control over your life. My second key takeaway, confident leaders have a healthy relationship with reality. It's vital to understand the three layers of reality. The first layer is the absolutes of the world, like the laws of the universe. The second layer is our shared reality. These are man-made inventions like money, taxation, and banking systems. The third layer is our personal reality. 
which are the stories we make up and tell ourselves. Understanding the three layers will help you determine if you or others are either delusional or have a healthy relationship with reality. My third key takeaway, confident leaders work on their blind spots. To do this, you must have a healthy relationship with awareness, vulnerability, and authenticity. Awareness, so you can be conscious of allowing new information in. Vulnerability, so you are open to receiving this new information and feedback. And authenticity, so you are open to adjusting your beliefs and opinions with the information you receive. Improve your relationship with awareness, vulnerability, and authenticity, and you'll always be able to work on your blind spots. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, confident leaders take control of their life. Confident leaders have a healthy relationship with reality and confident leaders work on their blind spots. Let me know your key takeaways on YouTube or at thecultureofleadership.com. Thanks for joining me and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at thecultureofleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate, and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.